Hello everyone, you're very welcome to another edition of the Shared Ireland podcast. Today we will be having a conversation with Stephen Donan Dalzell. Stephen is a freelance writer, commentator and LGBTQ activist. Stephen has written articles for the Guardian newspaper among other media outlets. Stephen, you are very welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Kieran. I'm quite excited to do this. So, yeah, thank you very much. That's excellent to hear. So, Stephen, to start off, as an LGBTQ activist, can you tell me about some of the highs and lows that you have experienced in the push for equal rights for all in the North? I mean, how long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I suppose, I mean, for a while I kind of took it day by day. Um, you know, one of the biggest achievements was definitely uh, the introduction of same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland, and that was something I'd worked for um, since 2011, up until it happened in 2019, so eight years of to and fro, and the low points were things like whenever the DUP would block um legislative progress on LGBT issues in the assembly. You know, there was a time, as you well know, that for three years we had no assembly, so nothing was able to get done. Um, you know, setbacks when it came to things like, for instance, Asher's, uh, you know, taking the marriage equality fight to the Supreme Court, which rejected to hear the arguments, etc. So a lot of low points. The high points were days whenever you win. So, and they're rare. <laughs> So I've learned to kind of appreciate those a lot more um, and know when to hold on to that because hope is a really powerful thing. It can be a very destructive thing because you can burn yourself out with, uh, what's the compassion fatigue or passion fatigue um, as an activist. But when you have a really good community around you and you have really good people working with you, working side by side for you, then you're able to uh, drive yourself forwards and no one went to be able to take a step back and say, I'm not able for this at the minute. And you know that somebody else has, it's in a safe pair of hands. So yeah, that's, that's that in a nutshell. <laughs> okay. That's great. And I suppose just going back to that moment you mentioned when same sex marriage was passed, can you tell me about that time where, like you've mentioned, it was eight years of activism, eight years of work. How did it feel when it became law that people in same-sex relationships would be able to get married? It didn't feel real because it wasn't like in the South where they had a referendum and there was a definite, say, uh, seven-week, eight-week run-up to a defined date where this would be decided upon. And, you know, you had people like... You had most of the political parties... um, community groups, celebrities, etc., businesses who were very much in favour of marriage equality. We didn't have that. So we had to try and <laughs> kind of make that hope and that drive last for as long as possible because we didn't know when it was going to happen. So I think it was it was the week after the 12th of July. I can't remember exactly what date. I'm going to say the 19th because that's stuck in my head for some reason. could be wrong. But I got a text, I was sitting in work and I got a text from my friend John, who's the director of Rainbow Project, and he said, uh, there's going to be a vote on this today at like three o'clock. 
um, in Westminster because Conor McGinn, who's a Labour MP, he had brought a private members, or sorry, he had brought an amendment to the Northern Ireland um, Miscellaneous Provisions Bill to kind of tack on equal marriage as a condition of this legislation passing. And that had been tried before and it didn't work. So we weren't that hopeful, but it was selected as an amendment by the Speaker. It was all of a sudden, all hands on deck. I had to say to my boss, I was like, look, I need to go. <laughs> I can't be here right now because something momentous is about to happen. She was grand with it. And then there was about maybe 15 of us, 16 of us in the community space in the LGBT centre in Belfast. And we watched it. And when it came through, there's actually footage of me <laughs> hugging my friend Leo and crying because it didn't feel real. It was just this cathartic release of all that work and the people we had lost people along the way people who had started the campaign with us and were there at the start when i look back at photos there are certain people who didn't make it and to see that to be there was just incredible and it's like it still doesn't feel real sometimes because it just happened like on a, a damp Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I suppose, like you mentioned, it was uh, from an MP, Conor McGain, who introduced or provided the legislation which allowed this. Is there an element of disappointment in the fact that it had to go through Westminster where it was largely politicians outside of Northern Ireland who were voting on this rather than elected members in the Assembly who actually provided uh, this momentous day for you? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably one of the only places in the world where it has taken a superior parliament, if you want to call it that, to introduce legislation like that for a devolved um, territory. Scotland were able to write their own legislation and pass it through Holyrood. They were able to do it in the south through the referendum and then in the Dáil. So... We had a majority in favour of marriage equality in the Assembly. The issue then was, because there was a vote in 2015, November 2015, and it was the first time that there had been a majority of MLAs in favour, and it was by one vote that they supported a motion calling on marriage equality to be legalised. And only for the fact that the DUP had presented a petition of concern, a veto, because at the time they had the numbers to do that, now they don't, then it, it didn't go anywhere. It wasn't substantive. It, the motion fell. So we knew we had the numbers. It was just that the parliamentary logistics, at, you know, in, in, enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement and St Andrew's Agreement meant that that couldn't happen. So, yes, it was disappointing because it shouldn't have taken this long. This should have been sorted out years ago this should have been dealt with in 2015 it should have been dealt with the same year that marriage equality was dealt with in the south and that could have happened if the DUP hadn't been so um, intransigent so the fact that it took another four years and then a further year for it to for them to allow couples in civil partnerships to convert their relationship to marriage uh, was disappointing because there was just so much time lost there was people who wanted to get married and were on uh, time scales that were running out, people who were terminally ill, people who were a lot older, uh, people who had to leave and go elsewhere to, to do it, and they should have been able to do it 
in their own hometown. It should have taken this long. So I was disappointed in that. But I was glad that Westminster did the right thing. And it's not a phrase you hear me saying very often. <laughs> but I, I'm glad in this instance that it, they did the right thing. Okay, excellent. And as you mentioned there, the the ability of the DUP to slow down progress uh, in matters like same-sex marriage. Last year, you wrote an article in The Guardian where you posed the question, did homophobia lead to Arlene Foster's downfall? How do you feel when you see or you read politicians making statements that you think are homophobic? I, I, I would lie if it said it didn't make me angry. There would have been a time when every younger Stephen would have been on a soapbox. Um, that soapbox is now Twitter. <laughs> 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 However, for me, a lot of the arguments have already been won. Um you don't it's funny though you after marriage equality you didn't see a lot of stuff from the dup regarding pushback on it they kind of accepted that they had lost that fight and you didn't hear an awful lot of homophobic rhetoric in the media from them any longer it was a different case with abortion because they were that it's a much more emotive subject than that there was political capital to be made there by trying to push back on that but um i don't hear it as often now but when I do hear it, it makes me angry because I have the I have the luxury of living in the city centre. I have a good support network of friends and allies. There are kids living in places like, um, you know, Falcara and, you know, Cookstown and wherever else that might not have those support networks and hear this stuff from their own elected representatives. And that stuff is damaging really really damaging you know the type of things we see for instance that the attack in orlando in 2016 at the pulse nightclub those attacks don't happen in a vacuum when you have politicians standing in the chamber of a parliamentary plenary uh, session saying that people like me shouldn't be allowed near kids and that we're an abomination and then you have people shooting up nightclubs they exist on the same spectrum as each other. It's bigotry, it's homophobia, it's hatred. And I, I, I wish they had could temper their tone and educate themselves. And in some cases, I think they don't, even, they don't even want to because there's no votes for them in that. And it's really sad. It's really, really upsetting. Exactly. And just as you mentioned there earlier about for young people who might be outside of an urban centre, of course, we have the assembly elections coming up and there'll be a lot of talk and a lot of rhetoric. But in terms of action, what do you think are measures that politicians or MLAs or MPs could take to make sure that young people who might be, I suppose, finding themselves and their sexuality, what what measures can be done to make sure that they don't have to feel insecure, they don't have to feel frightened about what their life ahead is? Well, for starters, there's no such thing as a law against homophobic bullying in schools in Northern Ireland. Um, we've heard lots of talk about it being difficult to outlaw, but it's not outlawing it isn't the problem. It's giving teachers and schools and educational institutions the tools to deal with it and deal with it properly. You know, I remember when I was in school being called, um, I'll not repeat them on this podcast because I wouldn't want to have to censor anything, but being called homophobic slurs, um, other kids being called homophobic slurs, and 
there's no point in complaining about, about it to the teachers because I also heard the teachers make similar comments. Um, that, I hope, has changed in the years I've been away from high school, which is not exactly yesterday. <laughs> um, but that's one of the things. Another thing is conversion therapy, which I know uh, they are making moves to outlaw um, the idea that you can cure somebody of their sexual orientation is just barbaric. And a huge thing is the health department and the executive itself putting money into um, mental health and allowing trans and non-binary young people to feel safe because at the minute the waiting lists for seeing the gender identity clinic for treatment for hormones etc is just it's like four years or something like that and it's just not good enough it's just not good enough when we have a situation where we're able to hand paramilitaries money to keep um, them from burning tires on bonfires we don't have money to stop trans kids from killing themselves that's not a society that's functional in my opinion Okay, and going back to something you mentioned earlier, something that's been in the news recently is uh, the ECHR judgment regarding the now infamous Asher's cake case. Writing in Slugger O'Toole recently, you outlined your own role in the case. Can you tell our listeners about how you got involved and why you thought it was important to get involved uh, in this matter? Yeah, I kind of happened by accident. I was at an event that was hosted by the then mayor of uh, North Down and before the council elections. It was uh, Andrew Muir, who's now an Alliance Party MLA for North Down. And they had held an event because he was the first openly LGBT mayor in Northern Ireland. He had been a member of Queer Space for a long time and a big supporter of theirs. And they held it. He, he hosted an event for them and they presented him with a cake. And it was the infamous uh, Bert and Ernie, I support gay marriage cake. Now, that cake was made by a different bakery, obviously, because Asher's never made the cake. But I remember talking to Gareth Lee at the event. And if you remember right, Gareth was the guy who took the case forward against Asher's. And him telling me, well, this is what happened. And I was like, well, what are you going to do about it? It's like, well, I've already been seeking legal advice about it. And I remember, I was like, this is going to be pretty bad because... We don't do civil discourse very well in this part of the world when it comes to human rights, to put it mildly. And for a long time, it was, you know, it popped its head up every so often, every few months, because there was there was developments in the case, there was progress, there was moves by legislators in the, in the assembly to um, suppose legalize religious based discrimination against gay people, etc. So. It was always the same people saying the same things. So you ended up having to go on the radio, social media, newspapers, etc., and try and counter the arguments that that people shouldn't be given human rights, which is bizarre if you just say that out loud. Um, the reason I thought it was important is because you know Northern Ireland is not a place where people's identities and human rights have always been treated with respect. And that's putting it lightly. So it's important that we don't see everything, though, through a Protestant and Catholic lens. Because the rights that we're afforded through things like the Equality Act and the Good Friday Agreement and different pieces of legislation that enshrine human rights, those are not designed to protect 
just minorities. They're designed to protect everybody. For instance, I wouldn't be allowed to go into a church and demand that they host a same-sex marriage because that's against their religious expression. And I wouldn't have a leg to stand on, and that's fair enough. But at the same time, it's not okay to discriminate against people based on gender identity, religion, race, sexual orientation, etc. So it was important that these things are tested, and sometimes they're tested in the courts, and sometimes it goes as far as the Supreme Court or the European Court of Human Rights. And it's important to set a precedent. I don't agree with the judgment. However, it was kind of thrown out on a bit of a technicality because, forgive me, I'm not, I'm, I'm a lay person. I'm not a legal expert whatsoever, but something to do with the way that there hadn't, they hadn't exhausted all domestic options for redress before taking it to the European Court of Human Rights. So I don't know where that leaves us. I think that's that's it dead in the water now. Um, but neither Ashers nor Gareth or the LGBT community have won here because there's been a lot of hurt on both sides and a lot of nasty things said by people who were never involved in the case and had no horse in the race um, because it gave them political mileage and column inches. But I still agree with Gareth's decision to take the case because it's the principle of the thing. He felt discriminated against and he needed to test that. And I I would encourage him to do it again. Anybody, if they feel that way, to, to do that because that's what the courts are there for. Okay, and as you mentioned there about the result of the case and I suppose a disappointment in the ruling, uh, what do you think it means going forward for the battle of LGBTQ rights for all throughout Ireland? Personally, I, th- I am glad that it's over because it's been rumbling on since 2014. It's now 2022. Um, I'm, I'm glad that it's over and done with because it was... It, it took a lot of time and energy from activists to go out to bat against some pretty horrible arguments. And those are not Gareth Lee's fault or the fault of the per- person who was taking the case. Um, that was just the reaction from our from our elected representatives and the churches. In terms of where it leaves us for LGBT rights in Ireland... I've always, it's, I've always thought that both North and South are on two different speeds when it comes to LGBT rights. For instance, we don't have, um, we're still governed by like the Gender Recognition Act up here, which is from 2004. But in the South, they have a thing called Self-ID, and that's been working well for a few years now. And there isn't an awful lot of, I don't think, cross-border harmonization on these things. But I remember canvassing for marriage equality in the South during the referendum and, and people coming up and lending us support from down there. But in terms of strategy, I don't know. I really don't know. I think we're moving into a period now where people's fears are more motivated by Brexit, the economy, the constitutional question. I think gay rights has been given a, a bit of a sidestep or a sideline, um, which was always the case. But... There are huge things in front of us that we have to confront. And for the most part, for the most part, and I say this is a very privileged position, is that I no longer feel like a second-class citizen in Northern Ireland or in the UK or Ireland. In that regard, there's plenty of other ways in which I do. Um, 
so yeah, I don't. That's a bit of a rambling answer. I'm sorry if that's nonsense. <laughs> but I, to answer your question, I don't know. I don't know where that leaves us now because I don't know what the next fight is going to be. Okay, well, that's it's really interesting to hear how you think that. Obviously, a wide range of issues might be coming ahead of the issues for human rights. But as you mentioned there about the constitutional question and the future uh, holds for Ireland, it's really interesting that in recent times that you've described yourself no longer as a unionist, but as a socialist. Can you outline the journey that led to your declining support for the union? And what were some of the main causes for this? That's a big question. That's one I've thought about writing about for a long time. So this is my opportunity, I suppose, to talk about it. Um, I think with the type of job that I do, I work in the health and social care sector in the community. And I've seen the sharp end of the wedge personally living in these communities and growing up as somebody who wasn't, we 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 were poor, you know, my family were poor. Um, through no fault of our own, not the, not the being poor is anybody's fault, but my mum and dad had decent jobs. My dad got ill, wasn't able to work. My mum had to stop working to look after him and raise my brother and I. So we struggled, and the value of money was something that was very acute and drummed into us as kids. So I think, I suppose, just seeing how the pandemic. The pandemic is the is the big answer because the rich have got richer and the poor have died. And I don't believe that capitalism is the answer. I, I don't believe that, that uh, governmental systems based on the preserve of capitalism are the answer. And that goes for both the UK and the Republic of Ireland. By no means am I an advocate for maintaining the union anymore because what the hell has the union done for us we see report after report about collusion about lies that are being told or were told a dirty war that the british um you know executed in their own back garden and i just don't have any faith anymore that the union is what can help us i also don't think that unity being absorbed into the current 26 counties as it stands is the answer either because we're just swapping one uh, <laughs> one government that doesn't care about us for another so my answer is global communism <laughs> but, but well my answer is socialism and that's where I've kind of come to that arrangement I just think the union's had its chance it's had its chance and nothing's improved. Things are getting worse. Okay. And the people who are going out to bat for the union, or who call themselves the leaders of unionism, like the DUP, like Boris Johnson, why the hell would anybody want to have those people um, at the helm of the ship? Now, don't get me wrong, there are pl- I have plenty of people in my circle of friends and family who are unionists. People like Julianne Core Johnson, who's a UUP representative for North Belfast, Sarah Crichton, who's a brilliant writer, um, you know, they are very passionate about maintaining the union because they believe it could be something better than what it is and that it can deliver. I no longer have that faith in it, but I'm not saying their faith is in any way misplaced. They just have a stronger faith in it than I do. And I want to try a different way. That's kind of 
awareness. It doesn't have to be about me versus them. If they're able to make it work and people's lives get better, brilliant, great. But it won't be because of the union. It'll be because of people like them, not the union. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I I suppose just going back there, you mentioned about how in the context of the pandemic, we've seen that even from yesterday, reports from Oxfam about how the wealth of billionaires have increased. When you look at social media discussion about socialism, you'll often see people talking about Venezuela and Cuba and how socialism will mean less rights and less freedoms for people. What does socialism mean for you? And why would, in your opinion, a socialist government or a socialist economic model be better than what we currently have? Well, in the, just in the, in the um, context of the pandemic itself, I mean, a lot of the rhetoric was about reopening the economy. It wasn't about saving lives. So people who were suffering and on the front lines were basically being used as the bricks and mortar for the economy to continue. To hell with how many of us died. There are 175,000 in the UK overall, at least. 3,000 in Northern Ireland. You know, there's only people have died during the pandemic here than died during the conflict. And that's a lot of people. And capitalism never, 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 um, not to sound like Ian Paisley there, but capitalism never, but, you know, prioritizes the well-being and safety and support and prosperity of human beings. It's about bank accounts. It's about profit margins. It's about making the rich richer. People like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who are worth between them something like three hundred billion, that's that's criminal. That's criminal. There is enough money in their bank accounts between them that they could end world hunger, and they just choose not to. <laughs> so, same with global warming, they just choose not to do anything about that. In fact, they're ro- launching rockets into space <laughs> where there's people starving on the face of the planet. So. How socialism would be better? Socialism prioritizes people's well-being and security and safety and prosperity. Under a socialist um, government, under a socialist system, people wouldn't be trying to choose between whether they should heat their homes or feed their kids. People would not be having to choose whether they support a homeless charity or support a charity for veterans. People would be provided with the means and the economic safety net to thrive and to survive and to be able to be something it's capitalism purports the myth that you know you you all have the same 24 hours in the day it's just about how you use it that's not true that's not true at all it's about resources and people just aren't being given the resources that they need we have the resources there we have the wealth there we just don't have the political means to do it because it doesn't benefit anybody except for the working class and why would you want to help them out when they're too busy working for you I sound like a real cynic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose all we can do is hope for a better future. I guess that's one of the one of the goals of socialism yeah. anyway. But um, yeah. when we think about the question of the future of the union, there's, of course, Northern Ireland and the Irish dimension, but there's also the Scottish dimension as well. You've seen the Scottish Labour Party are very firmly pro-union. You have Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, has said he would campaign for Northern Ireland to stay in the union. So... With all that in mind, do you think, is there a socialist case for Northern Ireland 
or Scotland staying within the union? I can't speak for Scotland because I don't have a lot of experience there. For Northern Ireland, yes. Purely based on economics, not based on cultural identity. Because the land here, whether you like to admit it or not, was stolen from the Irish. Um, I am a direct product of the, you know, plantations of Ulster. My family come from Scottish and Irish backgrounds. Um, I'm a direct result of the Troubles. My family were involved in the security forces. They wouldn't have met if the Troubles hadn't happened. So um, I I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. But I'm not, I'm not the best thing to come out of Northern Ireland. Let me just clarify. Um, I, I think in terms of economics, yes, because we don't pay water charges here. We pay reduced university fees here. We don't pay for our health care here. Um, we have a more centralised system of government in Northern Ireland. Um, we're able to liaise directly with our MLAs. I don't think you can say the same about your MPs um, in England. Um, in a lot of other ways, we're insulated from the effects of Brexit through the um, Northern Ireland Protocol, for example. You know, there's a, a large public sector employment rate here. I think it's something like 40% of employment in Northern Ireland is in the public sector as of a few years ago. That's probably changed, but I don't think it's changed that much. So, uh, yeah, there is a case to be made for it to be maintained in the Union. Also, we're part of NATO. We're part of the the, uh, UN Security Council. We're represented on the world stage via, you know, the UK. Um, But, again, I'm I'm not big into empiricism or militarism. Those are cases that people could make for why it's important that we maintain ourselves within the union. Scotland, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. I think anybody I know who's Scottish is a fierce Scottish nationalist. Um, even those who aren't interested in politics, they're very much, no, I vote SNP. I think Scotland should be independent. Um, so I can't speak for Scotland, but there is a case for Northern Ireland to remain within the union. There's no way we, we could survive with an independent entity. It's just not possible. Um It would be an economic basket case um, that would collapse six months into being independent. So it's just not possible. But as part of a United Ireland, yeah, that's possible. We could survive there. We could thrive there. Okay. And someone you mentioned earlier in terms of the DUP and I suppose Arlene Foster's time as leader will always be defined by her role in Brexit and with Boris Johnson to what extent do you think the union might be more secure with Keir Starmer as Prime Minister rather than Boris Johnson and with a, a Labour government rather than, I suppose, the Tory implosion currently taking place? I don't think it would be more safe under Keir Starmer. I, I don't. And that's not because of Keir Starmer. I don't think it would be safer under um, any government within uh, Whitehall or Downing Street because... No matter what government gets elected, the preserve of that government will be to maintain the capitalist system. And, I mean, the Labour were in charge between 1997 and 2010. And yes, standards of living improved, but a lot of other things suffered as a result. Civil liberties were curtailed in quite a lot of ways. We had the war on terrorism, which meant that we had a surveillance state. You know, there was funding given to... um, units of the intelligence agencies to spy on people. Boris Johnson and David Cameron and Theresa May and all the other 
clatter of Tory prime ministers that have been in charge. They've just been managing the decline of the United Kingdom, and I don't think a Labour government will do any different. Um, because, again, they'll just preserve the status quo, which is keeping capitalism. I mean, you've seen that in the, in the United States. They got rid of Trump and they brought in Biden, and Biden's just continuing the exact same policies as Trump. He might be slightly more to the left, but no more to the left than Mussolini was to Hitler. <laughs> do you know? Like, I know that's a bad analogy to make, but there is no, there's no choice there. It's the same as in in, the, in, the, in Great Britain. There's no choice. People's standards of living will continue to decrease. People's opportunities as a result of Brexit and other decisions that have been made by this government and probably future governments will continue to decrease. And I don't think that helps the union in any way. I don't think that Northern Ireland will be in any way more... I don't think Northern Ireland or Scotland or Wales will be any more prioritised under Keir Starmer's leadership as Prime Minister than Boris Johnson's or whoever becomes the next Prime Minister. Um, so I don't see it being different. You know, what's that, what's that song by uh, Meet the Old Boss, Same as the New Boss? Or Meet the New Boss, Same as the Old Boss? Nothing really is going to change substantially, I think. Okay. Um, well, as you mentioned earlier about uh, the DUP and... Brexit has, of course, been a major issue over the last few weeks. But over recent weeks, prominent loyalist figures have described the presence of an elite nationalist network in society. As someone from a working class, predominantly loyalist area, what do you think could be done to unite working class communities in the north to create a society based on solidarity rather than segregation and division? Socialism. <laughs> um, I mean, I, when I wrote that article on the Guardian last year about the riots just up the road from me, focused quite a bit on the effect that deprivation has on, you know, pervading the myths of the troubles and sectarianism, because there were kids throwing bottles and bricks and fireworks at each other who had the exact same lives in terms of their opportunities, education, health, um, employment, etc. It was poor people fighting poor people. In terms of what could be done to bring people together, stop voting for Sinn Féin and the DUP. Stop voting for the people that caused the problems. Stop believing their bullshit. Because that's what it is. I don't know if I'm allowed, I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. You can work away. If you have to edit that. No out. censorship, don't worry. <laughs> that's as strong as it'll get, I promise. Um, but the same people who have been promising us change since 2007 are the people who are currently in charge and nothing has got better. Nothing has improved. I don't know what you can do in terms of uniting people. That's beyond my expertise but it does make me think of the 1932 outdoor relief riots in Belfast where Protestant and Catholic workers came together to strike and protest against the the poor laws and the outdoor relief laws which if you couldn't get a job the Belfast Corporation as it was back then which then became Belfast City Council 
would hire you to do things like digging up roads, um, planting telegraph poles, construction work, etc. But for a pittance, it was less than minimum wage. And it was so grueling a work that people started to starve whilst they were working. So there's a great book uh, by Sean Mitchell called Struggle or Starve. And it's about the outdoor leaf rats. And that's one of the books that radicalized me, I have to say. If Sean, if you're listening to this, Sean, <laughs> you did a good job. Um, but Protestant and Catholic workers from the Shankle and the Falls came together to dig trenches to stop the police vehicles coming into their uh, housing estates to arrest them. They came together to throw bricks at the police. They came together to demand a fair wage and better quality of life together. And then partition happened. Or no, partition happened before that even, sorry, but then the Troubles and sectarianism kicked off a few years later, 30 years later, and there was no real galvanization of that working class solidarity because it then went back to being Protestants against Catholics. And that was the that was a real lost opportunity there for there to be a left wing socialist solidarity movement between the working class of Protestants and Catholics. But because of the actions of the church, the actions of industry, um, the actions of political um, movers and shakers, it didn't get off the ground because they were able to, to break that spirit. We need that back again. We need people to understand that people who live on the other side of the peace wall are not your enemy. These people are struggling to heat their homes and keep their lights on and feed their kids and put petrol in their cars the same as you. They're just as afraid of losing their job um, in shorts or in, you know, the waterworks. You are afraid of losing your job anywhere else. we're, We're told again and again that if you just keep an eye on the prods over there and the Catholics over here who are coming to take your job or they're they're getting better houses than you or they're getting a better quality of education or better access to healthcare, etc. That's all horse shit because we're all in the same um, we're all in the same boat here. And it's just a myth and it's a useful myth because it, it allows people who are in power to keep getting elected because they use fear. And it's time for us to stop being scared of each other. I don't know how that happens. But I live in hope. Great. So just earlier talking about obviously British politics at large and how you don't see the Labour Party being an alternative to what's currently in place. You mentioned there obviously Sinn Féin and the DUP have been in power for a long time and again, not much change in Northern Ireland. Do you see an alternative to those big parties? Would the coming together of the other parties in Northern Ireland, do you see any benefits to that or would it be same again old boss with the new boss or what are your views especially looking towards the election in may i mean as a former member of the alliance party i say former member i i've I've moved too far left um for alliance because they're quite centrist party there are some some things are right of center and some things are left of center but a lot of their policy positions i don't agree with so i've moved away from that but i do think there is an alternative there within the middle ground of the Green Party, People Before Profit, the Alliance Party, etc. 
the issue though is that <laughs> if you canvas for these parties, people ask you, well, are you a Protestant alliance or are you a Catholic alliance? So <laughs> it's about trying to break down that division and it needs to start. I think I think any government, any party that is able to pledge that if they get into power, they will push for integrated education because that's where it starts, in my opinion. That was the case in South Africa. And they started educating uh, blacks and whites together as kids. You know, kids aren't brought up to see each other from the other side of the road as a threat if they're educated together. Kids aren't born with hatred in their hearts. They're just, it's just not the case at all. It's taught. It's a taught behavior. It's a learned behavior. It's a learned irrational fear on phobia. And if we were able to nip that in the bud with integrated education, then I am more than happy to support any party that does that. Um, I know Sinn Féin are probably better than the DUP on that. Um, again, both those parties have been in charge for a long, long time, and they've had their chance. They've had the opportunity since 2007, which is how long ago? 15 years? 15 years or so? Yeah, I'm not good with numbers. Um, but 15 years is long enough to change things. And we're 24 years post Good Friday Agreement this year. We're still not integrated education still isn't a mandated thing for schools so I hope that answers your question I wouldn't throw my support behind any one party because I don't know who I'm going to vote for in the next assembly elections I just don't know um, but the party that can prove to me they're going to be they're going to prove themselves on integrated education will get my vote okay excellent um on this Shared Ireland podcast over recent weeks, we've been hearing discussions from people from a unionist or loyalist background. And one question that has been posed, considering everything that has happened with Brexit and the Brexit betrayal with Boris Johnson and so forth, is would unionist interests be better off in an all-Ireland parliament? Again, thinking about what you've spoken about earlier in terms of replacing one boss with another, and if it was a case that simply integrating into a 26 county state as we have currently in the republic do you have any thoughts on what the benefits or the downsides could be to i suppose a united ireland possibly first of all but more broadly an all-island parliament any new constitutional arrangement would have to be an entirely new state an entirely new state an entirely new constitution an entirely new political arrangement completely um, as I said, I wouldn't like to be absorbed just directly into the Republic with the way things are down there. It's a very heavily capitalised system in terms of how the government is influenced and run. Um, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are two sides of the same coin. And the only reason they got together in Parliament is to stop Sinn Féin getting in. They put all their differences aside, that they, all the animosity just to stop Mary Lou being Taoiseach. Um, but... An All-Ireland Parliament is something I think would, would be beneficial even before United Ireland has talked about. Um, we do have things like the North-South Ministerial Council. There are North-South um, institutions that cooperate, but none of those operate on the way uh, you know the Assembly would operate or the doll would operate. So I don't think it's a bad idea at all. I think it might get politicians talking to each other. Um, 
about how they can improve things. And I've long since held the belief that just because people are unionists doesn't mean they should be involved in conversations about any new arrangement. Because if you're not on the bus, you can't complain about where it ends up. You need to be there. You need to be at the table. We need to be taking seats at the tables we're invited to to discuss these things. Because if you don't engage in these conversations and you're left out, then you can't say that you're the victim of whitewashing or bigotry or discrimination because you had your chance to make the case for your own community and you didn't bother because you couldn't see further than the end of your nose. I would vote for any constitutional arrangement that would see working class people empowered to make a future for themselves. Loyalist, Republican, Protestant, Catholic, Nationalist, Unionist, those labels those labels are important to people, but in the grand scheme of things, people will be happy enough as long as you're able to keep a roof over their head and food on their table. Any new parliament or any new constitutional arrangement will have to be a brand new state completely. Everything has to be up for, up for debate. Everything has to be on the table. The anthem, the constitution, the flag. I know that's I know that's a controversial thing to say. Things like bonfires, parades. Even how people are able to elect their representatives has to be up for debate and on the table because, well, for starters, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland wouldn't join the UK again. So you can't expect Northern Ireland to just join the South and be absorbed into that system. We have a completely, whether people like to admit it or not, I consider myself to be an Irish person. Um, I am also a British person. I have dual identity that way. Um same as many people here so i want to see the britishness of people who live here represented in any new irish arrangement because places like the shankill like rathcool ballybina state etc aren't going to vanish overnight once there's a, a yes vote on unity unionists and loyalists aren't going to go oh glad that's over <laughs> that's not going to happen they need to feel accommodated they need to feel listened to. There needs to be constitutional guarantees that things like their culture and their freedoms of expression will be um, protected. I might not agree with all those things. I don't agree with a lot of the things that Republicans do either, but their right to do so is protected under the Constitution. And it has to be the same for loyalists. And that might be a difficult conversation and a hard pill for some people to swallow. But you cannot start any new constitutional arrangement in Ireland by repeating the same mistakes that unionists made well same mistakes it was very much deliberate the things that they did against um, the Irish and nationalist communities in Northern Ireland and we can't repeat the mistakes of the past and expect to be better so I hope that answers your question again long big ramble <laughs> I'm going to blame COVID <laughs> <laughs> well it's really interesting to hear your thoughts on that and as you mentioned about the importance of inclusion really so when you look at the conversations that have been growing about what the potential future could be for Ireland has there been enough inclusion within those conversations say as you mentioned earlier obviously about unionist inclusion but also including voices from LGBTQ communities do you think enough is being done to have a broad conversation on what the future whatever it is holds uh, for this island? 
I don't think so, and I think that I mean I think that's both north and south. I mean, in terms of LGBT inclusion, I think there is a lot of good stuff being done. It's just not being done quick enough. We don't have enough representation. I mean, yes, we had a T-shirt who was a person of color and an LGBT person, but he was still a Tory, <laughs> very much still to the right of center. Um, we don't have enough elected LGBT representatives. We don't have enough people. Put it, put it this way. We have 90 MLAs. We have 156 TDs. Like, what? How many senators? I think one of them, out of all of them, is a person of colour. In Ireland, in 2022, we have one person elected to Dublin City Council, Hazel Chew, who is a person of colour. Dublin. It's not representative. It's just not representative. We have no people of colour representing... Um, any anybody in the local councils in Northern Ireland except um, an SDLP representative and forgive me, I can't remember her name I think it's Lillian Sinoy Barrett um, I'm going to look it up because I'm going to get her name wrong but it's just not representative of who we are as um, a modern 21st century island and I'm not just talking about North or South, I'm talking about overall um, but also, we're not doing enough when it comes to things like rights for travellers, for homelessness, for women. We've seen just this past week how unsafe women feel going for a fucking run. And it shouldn't matter what she was doing. It shouldn't matter whether she was outside or had headphones in or with anybody or alone. Ashley Murphy should have felt safe. She should have got home safely. So there's not nearly enough being done to let women, not even let them be safe, to make them safe. And that's women who are able-bodied, women who are white, women who are disabled, trans women, women of colour. Not enough being done. We have a horrible, horrible, horrible track record of how we treat women in this country. We've never had a female Taoiseach. We've had a female Taunashta. We've had a female First Minister. But we had a female First Minister that wanted to strip women of the right to get an abortion. It's just not good enough. It galls me when people from anti-choice movements stand side by side with pictures of Aisling Murphy or Lyra McKee and say they're against violence against women when that's clearly not the case. They're very much in favour of some violence against women as long as it's mandated by the state. And that includes things like prisons. That includes the violence that the police, um, you know, carry out against travellers, homeless women. Sorry, I'm getting quite rattled. And I don't mean to because they want to have a sensible conversation about this, but just the last week has been difficult, I think, for a lot of people. And enough is fucking enough. At what point do we have to look ourselves in the, in the eye and think, how many more vigils am I going to have to go to? How many more candles am I going to have to light in the window? How many more prayers am I going to have to say to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Because it will happen again. 
it absolutely will happen again and the same conversation will be had and in two weeks time it'll be something else that's talked about so I don't think we're doing enough absolutely not yeah. sorry for going on that I'm not caring I, I apologise I just not at all Stephen I think everyone with Shared Ireland shares and pass on our condolences to the family and friends of Ashing Murphy we've heard many stories about what women have to go through in Ireland every single day, the harassment and the abuse they face. And at the end of the day, every person, whether they're just a regular citizen or whether they're an elected official, have a responsibility and they have a role to play in ensuring that no type of violence or no type of abuse against any group or section of society can be tolerated. Just as you mentioned there earlier about how MLAs or politicians that they attend sermons and they might give speeches, but their actions speak louder than words. We've seen on a whole range of issues that the DUP have said that they are going to bring down Stormont if certain objectives are not achieved with regards to protocol, as you mentioned earlier, and other aspects. Going back again earlier about how you talked about how it was Westminster rather than Stormont, which was able to legislate for same-sex marriage. Do you think if... Jeffrey Donaldson gets what he wants and Stormont comes down. Do you think is that it for Stormont that it just can't be continued? I think so. I I I mean, I'm surprised uh, after the three-year hiatus where Stormont still existed, but it didn't really exist. Um, I'm surprised that it ever got off the ground again. Um I think though, if if Jeffrey Donaldson pulls down the House of Cards, that's it. I really do think that's it for devolution here for at least a generation, if not altogether, because conversations then will start to move towards well, how many false starts and how many chances and how many how much money are the British and Irish governments and resources and political capital? How much of that are they going to spend? on trying to restart an institution that is inherently dysfunctional. I mean, the Assembly was um, the assembly was useful for a post-conflict society. The problem is we're not a post-conflict society. We never had a truth and reconciliation process. We had a war, and the war ended, and that was it. There was no, not the same way they had in South Africa, there was no kind of great investment in bringing communities together it was okay the war's over what do we do now and it was stormant and it collapsed in 2002 2003 2007 it got back up on its feet again a load of false starts since then it collapsed again in 2017 and now it's looking like it's going to collapse again over brexit and how many manufactured political crises um crises Crises. <laughs> so many manufactured political crises um, are the British and Irish governments and the people of this place supposed to tolerate before we say mothball it, start again, mothball it completely. Um, I think conversations then will start to move towards, you know, a border poll, direct rule. And direct rule isn't the answer. It's not the answer. Yeah, you know, people who we didn't elect making decisions for us in rooms where we don't have a voice in Westminster has never been the actor. And devolution was supposed to resolve that. 
But the problem is, is that the DUP don't know what they want. The DUP are still reeling from the fact that they got their ass kicked by Sinn Féin in the last Senate election. They're still reeling from the fact that they had Theresa May over a barrel over when it came to Brexit. If they wanted to, they could have demanded that the British government build a bridge from um, Larne to the moon, never mind Scotland, and they would have done it if they had supported Theresa May's Brexit deal. And they didn't. They shafted her. And then what happened is they lost their influence at Westminster because then the Conservatives came back with a massive majority. For a brief shining moment, the DUP and Arlene Foster were the most influential people in the whole of the EU, and they blew it big time. And now they don't have the influence they have in Westminster. They don't have the numbers at Stormont anymore. And there's a real identity crisis there because the DUP's entire modus operandi was that um, it's all it's all based on bravado and misogyny and and supremacy. They don't have that anymore. They had the they they had the rule of the roost, and now they don't. And I'm sorry to sound like I'm gleeful in that, but as a queer person living here, them's the bricks. You know, they didn't know what they wanted when it came to Brexit. They didn't know what they wanted when it came to different constitutional arrangements for Northern Ireland. They didn't know what it wanted they wanted when it came to the Assembly. So people have made the decisions for them. The voters have made the decisions for them. And now their only move left is to bring down Stormont. And it's not that that's where strategy has led them to. It is literally the only card they have left to play. They have no other influence and no other strings to pull on. So, and if they bring down Stormont, then what? Like, I, I say to the British and Irish governments, call Jeffrey Donaldson's bluff, let him do it. Let him do it. Because then he's a man without a mandate, a man without a seat. He's a man without a government to lead. And what's, it, what's his next move? Okay, well, I guess that is a question which we might see answered over the coming weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so on a final note, um, Stephen, while we were preparing for this uh, podcast, we came across a really fascinating article that you had wrote for a prospect on an ancestor of yours called Liam Tumelson, who left oh, yes. Bel- who left Belfast to fight fascism in Spain. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Liam? So his background, what the political backdrop was at the time, and what was the eventful life that he lived? Yes, no problem. Um, so Liam Tomlinson, um, as you say, is an ancestor of mine. He grew up in East Belfast. Um, he was from Ballymacarrett in East Belfast. He, he's named in the Christy Moore song, Viva La Quinta Brigada, which is how I came about learning about him. Um, because I heard the name Tomlinson, I was like, my great granny's called Tomlinson, and I looked it up, and he's related to me. Um, but Christy Moore says he was brought up in the falls, he wasn't, he was in Bally McCartney, Belfast, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so Liam would have been about my age, 32 or 33, when he went to Spain in 1936. He was killed at the Battle of Jerama Hill, he joined the Connolly Columns, he was a Protestant. He joined the IRA, <laughs> which is not a sentence you hear often. Um, he then was kicked out of the IRA because he joined the Irish Republican Congress. Um, great socialist and trade union agitator. He was also involved in the outdoor relief riots, which is where I think he cut his teeth on organising people. Um, so, 
I'm just reading a wee bit about him here. So it was 1937 he was killed. So he was in the Battle of Jarama Hill against uh, Franco's forces and the forces of the Nazis and, and Mussolini's fascists. And he was struck by a bullet and killed him instantly. Um, very young man, but a real inspiration to me. And I think to a lot of other people as well. He was one of dozens of young men that went from Belfast and this place to spread the message of socialism and working class solidarity overseas. And they had that first test when it came to defending the Spanish Republic against Franco. And unfortunately, a lot of them paid with their lives and he's buried over there. He never made it at home um, because the costs of um, getting his body home were just extortionate back then. And it wasn't something the family could afford. So he's buried over there. So huge influence to me. Um, you know, another ancestor of mine, Frederick G. Donnan, was somebody who helped uh, people escape the Nazis during the Second World War. So there is a history of agitation <laughs> within the family. Um, and I'm very proud to call. Look it up. That's excellent. Sorry, uh, the audio just cut out there uh, one second. It's no problem. Yeah, so it's the joys, unfortunately, of a Zoom call uh, from Tipperary to Belfast, but I suppose that is also <laughs> the perks of the internet as well. Oh, it's a long way to Tipperary, you know. There I'm you sorry. Go. I'm sorry. It was, it was just low-hanging fruit. I couldn't it was right help, there. I'm sorry. It was right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on that note... Uh, Stephen, I think we can wrap up our conversation this evening. It has been a pleasure to hear about your experiences and your activism and your thoughts as someone from a working class unionist background. I look forward to reading any publications uh, or articles that you will have in the future. Uh, so again, uh, thanks uh, to all of Thank our listeners so uh, for your continued su uh, support of the Shared Ireland podcast. And as always, a like or a retweet would be greatly appreciated. Shared Ireland also now has a GoFundMe page and you can find out more details about this on our Twitter channel. So uh, many thanks and good evening.